This is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. Today is the 5th of July, 2023. It's going to be another one of those off-label lectures. I um, promised you I was going to do this week before we get back into immunoepigenetics and finish that um, arc of lectures. This one's going to be on um, a topic that I cover every once in a while. <clears throat> when I say once in a while, I mean not even once a year. And I do it because for general edification for the public. So for that, um, I'm going to read to you a, uh, a preamble I wrote to get us into the discussion today for the topic that you will see revealed momentarily. Oh, you'll hear it, actually. Okay. So I want you to consider this. The Earth is rotating on a geoelectromagnetic axial field as it elliptically revolves around a star with a specific magnitude and spectral distribution that provides the heat and light necessary and sufficient to support living systems. Minor alterations in the sun's early inception could have easily moved its thermal and spectral emission emanations and gravitational influences, such that an object like the Earth, at roughly 93 million miles away, would never have sustained biological activity. Now, I argue these basic astronomical facts are typically unknown or if they are known, they're dismissed by people when they're discussing the concept of origins. Most people, I argue, have no sense of cosmological origins and therefore not particularly any eschatological conclusions. They are at best disinterested and thus continue on their day-to-day Nevertheless, somewhat vaguely aware that death is coming. Those last three words I just spoke are regulatory. And so they are regulatory to provide for me a specific function. They're focusing your attention. And they generate very, very crudely um, synaptic activity that is the product of very early developmental, neuronal, and glial wiring. From one moment to the next, the rational focus then became directed to an unpleasant unknown. Well, I would like to make it so that we have our rational focus directed to a pleasant unknown, and that is the dissemination of knowledge, and particularly biochemistry, or like a couple days ago, organic chemistry. So somatosensory activity can be demonstrated to respond to danger signals, even without cognition. We've discussed this many times at the subcellular level, toll-like receptors, ligand binding, things like that. Now, with the faculties of reason endowed in humans, 
far more information is communicated and subsequently received and responses transmitted all in less than a millisecond. It is as if our attention is epidictically poised to respond to survival and its predicated sequelae whenever it becomes necessary in those moments. All other thought processes become held in a sort of stasis until whatever the danger is, is perceived to have passed on. However, our individual purpose and worldview all too often refuse to consider how quickly all of it might end in an instant. Humans prepare less for that ending than they do for, uh, for example, brushing their teeth or combing their hair in the morning. Why would they? After all, it's clear that the world perpetually informs to conform individual concepts and ideas to center around daily routines. The day-to-day. Now consider with me, if you had knowledge of such critical detail and sophistication about the world around you, that while you take a hike in the woods or along a river or up a mountain trail, the biological and geochemical systems you encounter with your sensoria were filling your mind with all of their underlying physiological, genetic, and biochemical mechanisms. Now, that's a glimpse of what it's like to understand fundamental processes. One such process, I believe everyone, from small school children to the advanced elderly, that everyone should understand at yes, indeed, at the biochemical level is plant photosynthesis. So I begin. Photosynthesis is the conversion of light energy into molecular and cellular life. And it can be divided into two parts. Light energy is captured and used to make high-energy biochemicals. Second part, those high-energy biochemicals are used to convert atmospheric carbon dioxide into, initially, carbohydrates and other energy-rich compounds. Now, during that process, water molecules are split apart. The oxygen from them is released into the atmosphere as oxygen gas, ultimately O2. That's molecular oxygen. Now, this is important byproduct. It's a byproduct of higher plant photosynthesis because most organisms have evolved ways of using molecular oxygen ultimately in the aerobic world, to help them process digestion among all the other biochemical events in an aerobic organism. But, it's, but the 
first level is just to process nutrition. Now, some even this is even for autotrophic organisms because some energy transduction must occur even if you are photoautotrophic, like a plant is. Now, some of the oxygen that is generated from higher plant photosynthesis called oxygenic photosynthesis also moves into the upper atmosphere. And in there, it forms ozone, which is O3. And that's important in protecting the Earth's surface from much of the ultraviolet radiation, which of course would cause massive mutations to DNA, RNA, protein, and even lipid, depending on how deeply it penetrates or the exposure. Now, I want you to keep in mind that photosynthesis at the very initial level is a series of electron transport, biochemical, enzyme-catalyzed reactions. So consider for you, we, we, it, for me for a moment, on a graph, think about a y-axis showing you redox potential. Redox potential going from the negative at the top to the positive at the bottom. That's where redox potentials are shown on graphics. And the redox potential has a specific metric. It's electron volts. So we're going to be measuring energy level from a negative 1.2, to which is at the top of this graphical species, to one, positive one at the bottom, going through zero in the middle of the y-axis. And with that kind of setup, because of how energy potentials are recognized as free energy, the negative values give you the higher energy level. That's why it's at the top of the y-axis here. Now, consider now, I'm going to go through a series of photochemical reactions and I'm going to explain to you where they are on the redox potential. When light is received of a specific wavelengths, not all photosynthetically active radiation, which is usually considered between 400 and 700 nanometer wavelength of light on the electromagnetic spectrum, not all of those discrete wavelengths are potent enough to drive these photochemical reactions. Only some are. Even though all of 400 to 700 has some contribution to photosynthesis. That's why it's called PAR, or photosynthetically active radiation. But obviously some wavelengths are gonna be much more potent. And we'll get into that later. Not today, probably, but later. We'll dissect the electromagnetic spectrum, and we'll talk about where some wavelengths are more significant for some physiological biochemical uh, processes and responses. So light is first captured by a protein pigment complex that is in the chloroplast of the higher plant. And that protein pigment complex is called photosystem 2. It will receive light of specific wavelength, and when it does, sufficient quanta of that wavelength of light, photolysis will occur. Photolysis is that splitting of water 
where H2O is converted to two protons and one half O2. Now, that reaction center, photosystem 2, has antenna molecules. So it has chlorophyll, which will absorb light, but it also has carotenoids and flavins, all of which absorb light at specific discrete wavelengths, all within the PAR. So the entire reaction center, when you add up, it's lambda max for what light will transmit and induce, for example, that photolytic response. That reaction center has a lambda max of 680 nanometers. So that, that photosystem two is called P680 for that reason. Now, when you photolyze water, you generate protons half and oxygen. We also generate two electrons. So now comes the electron transport chain, all occurring in that endomembranous system of the chloroplast, the thylakoid and granal stacking of the endomembranous system of chloroplast, which is an organelle found in higher plant cells, photosynthetically active higher plant cells. So the electrons will move from that antenna molecular photosystem two reaction center from a low energy, low energy state, and now being measured as a redox potential of about oh, 0, 0.8, all the way up to about a negative 0.6. And there, the electrons are received by the primary electron acceptor. Those electrons then within the electron transport chain will go through cytochrome B3. Then those electrons will drive phosphorylation of ADP and PI to ATP. Okay, So you get a photophosphorylation. Those electrons drive that event. In other words, understand, you're getting net ATP synthesis from the electrons that are driven off from a splitting of water because of the um, inception of light at specific wavelengths at photosystem 2, that protein pigment complex, in the thylakoid and the fret membranes of the chloroplast in the higher plant. Okay? Understand, that's what's happening here. So visualize that whenever you look at a plant leaf. Consider the prolegomena to this uh, to this series of lectures, okay? All right. Now, what's going to happen after that? Those electrons will help drive the photophosphorylation to ATP, and they will be driven to a cytochrome F. Now you're moving down the energy electron volt gradient. You're moving from about... 0.66 down to uh, acetochrome B3, down to acetochrome F, which is all the way down at about zero point, negative 0.3 electron volt. Now, those electrons going through cytochrome F, okay, that's all going to be a reduction because the electrons are moving through, are going to now reduce photosystem 1. Okay, electrotransport chain is going to go to what? Another protein pigment complex. Now, that reaction center is also known, besides photosystem 1, as P700. That's measuring the lambda max wavelength, you say. So 
Now, once the electrons hit photosystem one, light also is hitting photosystem one, absorbed. But we're not getting water splitting because there isn't sufficient energy here. But we are getting two electrons now kicked up even to a higher redox potential, all the way up above minus 1.4 electron volt per, per reaction. That's per the two electrons, right? So now you got the primary electrons up here again, which is, has a much higher redox potential. Those electrons are now sufficiently energetic to drive the reduction using protons from water, right? But using the reduction potential from this electron transport chain from the second driving with light induction and from the cytochrome F um, uh, involvement of the electron flow into photosystem one, you're going to get sufficient amount of reductive capability to generate any DPH. So you've done a photolytic reaction. You've done photophosphorylation to make ATP. And the third biochemical event is the reduction of NADP with two protons coming from water to make NADPH. So now you've made the very important reducing equivalent NADPH. That NADPH will be used to carry out reductive biosynthesis, which ultimately is going to involve the ribulose bisphosphate carboxylase oxygenase enzyme, which is the CO2 binding and capturing protein in higher plant photosynthesis. It's one of them. Pep carboxylase is another that's in C4 plants. And there are others that are related in other photosynthetic reaction centers, for example, in lower um, photosynthetic organisms. So, but that's the reducing power is now generated. You made ATP. You've generated molecular oxygen. You've been moving these electrons all through that thylakoid membrane um, fretted um, structure inside the chloroplast. And now you have enough reducing power in the form of NADPH to carry out reductive biosynthesis to capture CO2 and convert it to carbohydrate. Okay. So the chloroplast itself has a very specific structure. It is it has an outer membrane. It has a stromal lamella and it has an inner membrane. Now the inner membranes are those stacks of brana, those are membranous discs and then thylakoid uh, elongated membranous stretches known as thylakoid frets, which connect the granal stacks. Now that kind of membranous structure, that biophysical structure, enhances the surface area such that the maximum amount of light can be absorbed by that organelle during active higher plant photosynthesis. Okay. So you have stacks of granum called grana. You have the stroma of the chloroplast. Now that's essentially the soluble region, a non-endomembranous region. And that's where the many of so-called dark reactions will occur. And the only reason they're called dark, and I just went through the light reactions, by the way. The dark reactions are called because you don't need light for those reactions to occur. Right? So 
you need light to ca to do those fundamental processes I just told you about electron transport, you know, photophosphorylation, the splitting of water, the reduction of NADP. But the rest of photosynthesis is inv involving using the reducing power and the ATP to generate carbohydrate. And ultimately, that's going to be because of the incorporation of atmospheric carbon dioxide directly into a 5-carbon sugar, which is ribulose 5-phosphate, which comes from uh, the same kind of pathway we talk about in animal cells. Remember, that's the oxidative pentose phosphate shunt. Well, we're going to talk about the reductive pentose phosphate shunt in plants, also known as the Calvin cycle, named after Melvin Calvin. So now you get a little bit of idea of the chloroplast structure. Now, the lipids that you find in that membrane in the mitochondria are, are unique to that structure. So you have galactosyl diacyclosterol, or monogalactosyl diacyclosterol, I should say. You have digalactosyl diacyclosterol. So those would be MGDG, DGDG. And you also have a sulfur-containing sugar called sulfoquinovocele attached to diacylglycerol. So those are galactolipids and sulfoquinovocele lipids, which make up that thylakoid, granal-stacked, endomembranous, photosynthetically absorbing membranous system and higher plant chloroplasts. And those type of lipids you will discover there. Now, what about the pigments which actually absorb the light? Well, you have chlorophyll. Now, chlorophyll has a porphyrin ring structure. And it's similar the porphyrin ring structure is similar to what we see in porphyrins that have iron that is localized in their center. And those would be the heme porphyrin ring structures. So you have four centrally located nitrogen atoms in the center of the ring. And those four nitrogen atoms will coordinate around a magnesium ion in chlorophyll. But in, for example, protoporphyrin 9, which looks very similar to chlorophyll, those four nitrogen atoms in that porphyrin ring structure will coordinate around an iron ion. Okay, So there are various types of these chlorophylls. Uh, chlorophyll A and B are the most common, and they only really differ slightly by uh, the relative number of carbon atoms and their oxidation state comparing chlorophyll A and chlorophyll B. Okay, and I won't go through those individual R groups, but that's how they differ between those two chlorophyll, and they do play a role the specific absorption of light at specific quanta and wavelength. Okay. There's another R group, of course, and it's, it's usually um, a, a component then of that 
Vital side chain or a, wait for it, geronial, geronial side chain. That's right. So prenolipids are attached to chlorophyll molecules. Okay. And that would be on our group number four on chlorophylls A and B. You're going to have a phytol chain. That's F-P-H-Y-T-Y-L, phytol chain. Or in bacterial chlorophyll A and B, you're going to have a geronial, geronial side chain. That's a C20, right? Uh, it's going to be much more unsaturated than that phytol side chain which has the same number of carbons, actually. Okay? Just remember, you also have that important integrated lipid component in that chlorophyll molecule. So the light uh, spectra uh, component of this uh, electromagnetic event, which is the first stage of photosynthesis, involves light moving from a ground state to a excited state first it and energy equivalents go up as you go up the excitation ladder so absorption of blue light in the ground state will kick up that uh, that um ex excited state that energy uh to a second excited state those um photons will then drop down into what's known as internal conversion Internal conversion is also known as radiationless heat production down to the first excited state. Whereas absorption of red light will only make it to that first excited state. And what occurs to some of those photons from the first excited state is that they will be lost down to the ground state via the process of fluorescence. Now that first excited state, besides delivering light as fluorescence, will also carry out all the photooxidation chemical reactions. Okay. So that's an energy grid understanding of photon flux through three different states. Ground state, first excited, second excited. Now, there's a lot more information I can give you about that, but I'm just giving you the outline here. And this is the beginning of the lecture on photosynthesis, and it's going to be more than 30 minutes, believe me. So what are the light reactions? Oh, boy, I better check the time here. Because I realize I've been talking already for a while. It's amazing how time flies. Yes, it does. Even if you don't watch the clock. Isn't that amazing? All right. What about the light reactions? Now, the first principle of photochemistry and photobiology will tell you that in order for light to have an effect in a biological system, what's the first thing that has to happen is that you have to obtain absorption of that light. So the absorption is carried out by pigments. Pigments are molecules that are specialized for the absorption of photons of specific wavelength. And they therefore must be found in all, the pigments have to be found in all organisms. Two major classes of photosynthetic pigments that occur in higher plants, I mentioned to you at the beginning of the lecture, are the chlorophylls, 
and the carotenoids. Okay. All right. So if you look at a absorbance graph and plot absorbance on the y-axis and wavelength on the x-axis, and you go from 400 nanometer to up to 800 nanometer, you can look at the relative absorption spectra of those pigments. Remember, they're going to be occurring as protein pigment complexes. So chlorophyll A, for example, will have a very strong absorbance via the, right around the transition between violet to blue light. So that's right around 400, 420, 430 nanometer of electromagnetic spe spectrum. There's another big peak in chlorophyll A slightly further down. And so you have two peaks for chlorophyll A. You also have the same kind of mapping with chlorophyll B, but chlorophyll B will bind, will, will absorb more a little bit further into the 400 nanometers, like about at 440, 450, whereas chlorophyll A's lambda max is going to be more at about 420. Okay. Carotenoids will cover near chlorophyll A and B. There will be a couple of peaks. Both of those peaks will also occur between 400 and 500 nanometer incident light. Other pigments of a significance are phycoerythrin, phycocyanin. Okay. And of course, we don't talk about the bacterial chlorophylls, but those are going to be far more red shifted for their lambda max of absorption. Well, into bacterial chlorophyll A really absorbs most of its light in the infrared. All right, so I think that's all I have time for. Yes, we'll get back to photosynthesis. Very next lecture, Dr. Dan Guerra, I think Biochemistry Podcast, 5 July 2023. Bye for now.